This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Basically, if you're a runner, um, there's a good chance you're going to be injured. Even for the average recreational runner, you know, if you just do an occasional distance run, this is an older study showing that you know, it's anywhere from 37 to 56 percent. And I've seen other research showing that it could be as high as 85 percent the chance of you having an injury uh, during the course of a year's training. Most of the injuries that we're going to talk about with running are, are of the lower extremity, and most of these are of the knee. Now, I think there's three main reasons why you can develop a running injury. So it's overtraining. And more than anything else, um, this is probably the biggest reason. So what I'm saying is that most running injuries are actually preventable. It also may be malalignment, and we'll go into that. So that could be part of your normal or your structure. And then muscle imbalances. And that's something that we can really try and address um, in terms of therapy. So even with the Stanford team, and I've been working with them now since 1992, um, the biggest reason for injury is training errors, so even with the elite runner. And what we mean by that is, you know, too much, too soon, too fast. Um, there's just something new or different in your training program. And it may not seem to you like it's much, but when somebody comes to clinic, I always to a very uh, detailed analysis of the running program, because we can usually pinpoint something that they changed. In terms of malalignment, this is usually um, it's what you're born with. And this is something we usually can't change. So you may have knee alignment with your knees two together, knock-kneed, or too far apart, bow-legged. And this can predispose you, obviously, to abnormal forces in the lower extremity. Then there's muscle imbalances. So to give you an example, with the knee, a common muscle imbalance is that the inner quadricep muscle, uh, the vastus medialis, particularly the vastus medialis oblique, is weaker or can't uh, compensate in comparison to the more powerful lateral muscles. And this is what I'm going to go over tonight. So this is what I call the big five. And this covers probably 90% of the injuries that I'm going to see in my clinic. Patellofemoral pain, or, or otherwise called runner's knee, uh, iliotibial band syndrome, shin splints, uh, Achilles tendonitis, or plantar fasciitis. So we'll start off with uh, patellofemoral pain, um, or you hear it all the time, runner's knee. You know, I've got runner's knee. And it's typically a sort of a vague pain underneath your kneecap. Um, it may be hard to localize. And it's going to be worse when you go up and down stairs, when you do squats, or when you do your hill work. And interestingly, it's going to usually hurt worse going downhill than uphill. Um, because when you go downhill, the forces are actually much higher on your knee. And I think the predominant cause for patellofemoral pain is that there's some type of maltracking. So the patella is this small bone. 
and it has to stay in a pretty smooth line as you bend and you straighten your knee. If anything pulls that out of alignment, it's going to be prone to abnormal forces. So what can we do about that? Well, there's um, some nice taping techniques. There was actually an Australian physical therapist, Jenny McConnell, who's not only developed this special um, rubberized tape um, that you can wear and you know, holds up pretty well when you sweat, and that can help bring the patella back into alignment. Um, and the studies have found that it actually uh, seems to decrease the load on the knee joint. It increases quadriceps activity. Um, it may help redistribute the uh, contact pressures underneath the kneecap. So this is something a therapist can do for you, or you can actually learn how to do on your own. But it's a temporizing measure, so it isn't something you would do forever. You just put the patella back into alignment until you can change the soft tissue um, forces around the knee, build up the strength. Also braces, and uh, we've been doing uh, a lot of research with comparing different braces uh, here at Stanford, and I can show you, we've got a fancy MRI scanner we can do this in. Um, for the elite runner, you know, you're not really going to want to run in a bulky brace like this, but if you have a lot of malalignment and your patella keeps coming out of the groove, then a brace like this may be what you need to keep running. So the big question then is strengthening. And we know that the most important thing you can do to treat and prevent a uh, runner's knee is to strengthen your quadriceps. So then the question is, well, what's the best exercise? So this is what we call an open chain exercise. And I'm sure everybody who goes to the gym has seen this. Probably a lot of you do it. And what we mean by open chain is that your foot isn't connected to the ground. And so what's interesting about this is that as you go from the starting position here to the middle and to the end position, at the finishing position here, the biomechanical studies have shown that this actually puts a very high stress on your knee, and particularly in, on your patellofemoral joint. So persons without knee complaints may do okay with this. It's a good way to sort of build the bulk in the quadriceps. But more and more, I see patients who come in who've just decided to go to the gym and start exercising, and they develop patellofemoral pain just from doing this exercise. What is preferred is something like the leg press. And this is a, what's called closed chain, because your foot is connected to something. And when your foot's connected to something, it's simulating your foot being connected to the ground. And that is more um, consistent with what your foot is doing with running. So it's a closed chain system. Now as you go from this position, the starting position of the leg press, to the finishing position, at the finishing position here actually is the lowest force for this exercise on your kneecap. So I generally prefer that patients um, can do something like the leg press. And if it hurts too much when their knee's bent this, you, at 90 degrees, you can keep it within, let's say, 45 degrees to zero. And that keeps the pressure pretty low on the knee. Well, what is the new research showing us? And this is that fancy scanner I was telling you about. We have um, this uh, unique MRI scanner here at Stanford where uh, it's pretty much being used for research purposes. Um, but we can actually have people stand in it. We can have them do a squat in it. And we can look at real time what's happening with the patellofemoral joint. And one of the most exciting things about this is in terms of exercise. 
And what we have found is that not only the quadriceps, but it's the muscles up at the hip that control your rotation of your femur that are most important for the, the uh, patellofemoral joint and knee mechanics. And so our focus now, probably the biggest take-home point is if you want to prevent injury is the core strength and the hip strength. Probably the most important thing a runner can do. As you're overcoming your injury and you're getting back, um, you want to make sure that your gait mechanics haven't changed. Um, you have a normal gait pattern. You're not compensating in any way or you've gotten into some kind of bad pattern. And then you want to gradually you know, go back to your normal mileage and intensity. Um, so often people start to feel good and they jump back and all of a sudden they're doing you know, a 10 mile run um, and they get injured again. But if they just you know, slowly go back, let your body get used to it again, they would be fine. I put this slide up just to let you know there's a lot of other things that can give you pain around the knee. So not all knee pain in a runner is um, from patellofemoral pain. Um, just very briefly, um, so pain on the inner part, what we call medial, could be from a meniscal tear, could be from what's called a plica. Um, underneath, a real deep pain underneath the patella could actually be from a tear or a defect in the articular cartilage. Um, up high here is where the quadriceps tendon attaches, and you could have a quadriceps tendonitis, a down below a patellar tendonitis, or on the outside here, uh, iliotibial band. Um, so, and that's, that's where doing a detailed examination can help tease these out, because every injury has a little bit different treatment. Just a few slides about osteoarthritis, and this could be a whole talk unto itself, but there was an interesting study done here at Stanford a, a number of years ago, and they looked at runners over a 20-year period, and they found that there is no correlation between long-distance running and the later development of osteoarthritis. Okay, but there is a caveat with that. If you already have some arthritis, then running will accelerate it. So if you start off and you're young and you don't have any arthritis, from the studies, it doesn't look like you're going to be any more prone to developing arthritis. In fact, possibly even protective because you're keeping your leg muscles strong. But somebody who has developed it from genetic reasons or an old injury, um, running may not be the best activity for them. Now for my patients who want to keep running, uh, we'll modify their activity. Maybe they'll do some pool workouts, some biking, and then just you know, do their running only a couple times a week, softer surface. We'll keep their knees strong, um, you know, the chondroitin and the glucosamine. The word is still out on that. We're waiting for a big study from the National Institute of Health. Um, but at the very least, it doesn't do any harm. Um, my belief is that it probably acts as an anti-inflammatory. We're still not sure if it actually can improve the cartilage, but um, certainly no harm in taking it. And then if there is any significant inflammation in the knee, we can offer a corticosteroid injection. The new thing here, though, is that um, for my patients, and I won't do this if you have serious arthritis and I'm doing injections just to keep you running, but you have some mild symptoms and we want to keep you active, there's what's called viscosupplementation, and basically it's like lubrication for your knee. And we do a series of three injections uh, once a week for three weeks, and it basically helps lubricate your, your joint, eases your symptoms, and patients will often do very well for six months, a year. Um, so it's not something you want to do all the time, but uh, many patients find it very helpful.
Okay, my favorite injury, iliotibial band syndrome. And uh, this injury, boy, it has plagued the Stanford track team more than any other injury, and, and it just um, got me going with, you know, why does this happen? What can we do to prevent it? What's the best treatment? And patients will typically say they've got pain on the outside of the knee as opposed to, you know, on top of the knee or underneath the kneecap. And sometimes they'll just tell you the knee gets tight, uh, it may just be a burning sensation. The difference with this injury, though, is that patients will tell you their symptoms are very reproducible. So you'll feel great, you'll go out, let's say at one and a half miles, your knee tightens up. You can't go any further. You stop, you go home, you feel great again the next day. You try it again, exactly again, one and a half miles, your symptoms come on. Now, if you keep pushing through that, eventually you'll have pain all the time. Um, and it doesn't seem like a significant injury at first, but it can be very difficult to treat. And we've had athletes uh, a number of years ago who would be out a whole season with this. Now we know how to prevent it, and that, that's a very rare occurrence. Now, with this, um, there can be inflammation right as the IT band um, attaches down by the knee. And if there's a significant area of inflammation, this is where it's very helpful to just take a tiny bit of corticosteroid medication, so anti-inflammatory medication in a concentrated form, and inject it. And uh, that can help people, you know, at least start to feel better. It's not the whole rehab, but at least it gets you going. And sometimes I've done this, people are in the middle of training for their marathon, two weeks to go, you know, we, we resort to this and it, it gets them through the marathon. The key to the treatment, though, is you have to stretch out the IT band. Um, you want to do something to massage it. Um, you need to loosen up the tissue because it's very thick tissue. So this is a, three, a, ver, a ver, variation, basically, of this standing IT band stretch. And uh, this is J.J. White. And J.J. was a runner here at Stanford. And for, he's actually in medical school now. But for his senior thesis, um, in human biology, we actually went in the biomechanics lab. And what we found is that by doing this overhead arm extension, and also to a lesser degree by bending diagonally like this, you could get a much better stretch of the IT band than just standing like this. The other thing that's very helpful is this foam roll. Do, is this, have you ever seen one of these? It's just a thick piece of foam. Um, so every Stanford runner, as soon as they enter Stanford, boom, they get a foam roll and they carry it around with them. Um, I even have one in my, in my house in front of my uh, TV. My wife always is, you know, trying to put it away. But every night I try and do it because my IT bands are always getting tight. But this is a, a very inexpensive way to do your own deep tissue massage. Now, the most important thing, also, similar to patellofemoral pain, um, from a lot of research we've done now is that runners with IT band syndrome are also weak at their hips, and particularly their outer hip muscle, the hip abductors. So as the last part of the rehabilitation program, we want to not only as we start to get them back with cross-training activities, but a progressive hip abductor strengthening program. This is the beginning exercise, and they're lying on the side and just very slowly lowering the leg and raising it up and just learning how to fire this muscle. Sometimes this happens all the time. The patients are so weak, I can take one finger and break their strength. Because they just, running 
If I explain it like this, running is primarily in a single plane of activity. You're going straight ahead all the time. And you're not using the, the muscles that control you in what's called the coronal plane and side to side. But you need that motion to control your pelvic motion and to control lower extremity alignment. So I think, it's my theory, theory at least, that unless you do a lot of cross training, you need to do specific exercises to keep these outer hip muscles strong. Once you can do that exercise, this is a challenging one, to stand on the side of the stool and do what's called a hip drop. Now usually people will start out holding something for balance. And then this exercise is sort of you know, in the last stage, but now you're really working that, what's called the uh, coronal plane. You're working the side to side movement, really engaging the muscle. And then finally, you, know, you want to start back to your running program. But there's an interesting finding uh, with IT band syndrome that makes it really different from other knee injuries, and that when you go back, you actually want to start off with some faster running, so maybe some 100-yard strides. And what we've found, not myself but other researchers, is that biomechanically, um, if you basically, when you're running faster, um, you bend your knee more. And it keeps the knee out of this zone of um, what they call impingement, where the IT band impinges against the outside of the knee. If you go for a slower jog, your IT band is more prone to this impingement. So what we do with our Stanford runners when they're coming back, rather than tell them to go for you know, a nice, easy 20-minute jog, we say go on the track, do some 100-yard strides. When that's doing well, do a very wide 400, then do some repeat. Now, not all out speed, but at a fast, fast clip. And then we get them going for the longer runs. Okay, moving down um, is shin splints. So, you know, the most common cause of leg pain. And in the sports medicine community, we call it medial tibial stress syndrome, right? So shin splints is too simple, so we had to come up with something a little technical. Um, have, I'm sure a lot of people, how many of you have had this injury? Yeah. The most common cause of leg pain, particularly probably when you're first starting off in your running program. Um, the typical location for this pain is in the inner side of the leg, down in this area. Um, you can also get it on the sort of upper outside part, but that's less common. Now, I'll show you just a couple exercises to help prevent and to treat. Um, so you want to improve the flexibility of the uh, calf muscles in the back. And you've got two main muscles there. You've got the gastrocnemius, and then below that, the deeper calf muscle, the soleus. And this stretch with your knee bent is going to help um, stretch out the gastrocnemius. And the gastrocnemius crosses your knee joint. So you have to keep your knee straight. Now, the soleus doesn't cross your knee joint, so the best way to get a good stretch in that is to actually bend your knee. And sometimes you'll be tight in both, sometimes just one. So it's important to stretch both ways. Another simple exercise is to strengthen the muscles in front. So we have this muscle balance, typically, where the muscles in front of the leg are too weak and the muscles in the back are too tight. And a good way, very simple way to strengthen this is just walk on your heels. Do this a couple minutes a day. Now, if you do it in the gym, people are going to think you're a little bit strange. Um, but just tell them, you know, I'm trying to prevent my leg pain. Um, very simple, easy thing to do. You'd be surprised, too, to do this for a couple minutes. You're going to get a nice burn. In, that, in the front of the leg. 
Now, there are some gate modifications, um, particularly for the more inexperienced runners. So that first time marathon uh, trainee, um, what we often see is that you're overstriding, you know, you're landing too hard on your heel. And what you can do is try and increase the, um, your cadence, basically. So try and take quicker steps. And by doing that, you actually have less impact force on your leg. I mean, it's more, actually a more efficient way to run, too, and probably a faster way to run. Um, also, a little forward lean at the trunk can help, too. Not too much, but just a little bit. Kind of keeps your momentum going. There are a lot of other causes of leg pain. Um, I put this up, again, not so you can, we'll go over all, every single one, but just the kind of things that go through my mind if somebody comes in. Um, the big thing we want to make sure is that you don't have a stress fracture. And the, the key between just a shin splints and a stress fracture is whether the pain is diffuse along the bone or whether it's a localized pain. And the coaches always want to know, well, I'm concerned. Is my athlete getting a stress fracture or not? Very simple test that I tell them to do and you can do as well. If you can hop up and down on the leg for 30 seconds and you don't have pain, you don't have a stress fracture. Okay, if you do that and you have some pain, there is some reason for concern. Um, now, what you can do before you, you, know, you call the doctor is just get in the pool. Okay, so do something non-impact. Now, swimming's great, but my favorite for the runner is deep water running. And it's hard to see here, but this is um, a flotation device. And so it helps keep you buoyant. And what we found, we've had athletes with injuries, and we can train them up until really big meets, even the Olympic trials, with significant injury. Keeping their form, they repeat the same workouts that you know, their teammates are doing on the track. They can do it in the pool. And when they come back, it's a very smooth transition back to full running. Now, if your pain persists after you know, a couple days in the pool, certainly if you have pain walking around, you know, it's worth an evaluation because, you know, stress fractures can be serious. Moving down now, uh, Achilles tendonitis. And this is the back of the, the legs. So you've got those two calf muscles we talked about, the gastrocnemius and the soleus. And they actually merge together and make a little twist and then insert down here at the back of your heel, at the calcaneus. And Right here, as they twist, is an area of poor blood supply. And so that's the area that's very prone to tendonitis. What I want to point out here is that there's three degrees of injury. And this is common to a lot of tendon injuries. But you can have a, a tendonitis, which is sort of inflammation around the tendon. Um, as that persists, you can develop what's called tendinosis. And tendinosis means you actually are starting to develop scar tissue within the tendon. And then the final stage is actually a tear of the tendon. So we, you know, we always want to catch you before you get to that stage. Now this is an, an MRI. It's a side view. And what you can see here, this dark area is the Achilles tendon inserting down here on the heel, on the calcaneus. And you see this white area here? Okay, that shouldn't be there. Okay, so that's an area of the scar tissue, what we call tendinosis. So it's weak tissue. Um, it's thickened tissue. And it used to be that if we saw this on the MRI, we pretty much sent you to surgery. But there's been some interesting research out of Sweden. 
And they found by doing a very simple exercise, they had an 82% success rate, even in those patients who had that tendinosis, that bad scar tissue. And this is the only exercise they did. So it's a calf raise. Okay. So here you're raising up. Now the key, though, wasn't the raising up. It was the lowering down. And it was slowly lowering down and actually going negative. So let's say you're on a step or a curb is you want to go negative, so you're really stretching out the muscle. And that's what we call an eccentric exercise. The muscle's lengthening as it contracts. So to give you another idea of that, um, let's say you're in the gym and you're doing a, a curl. Okay. Now you know as you bring the weight towards you, that's concentric. The muscle's shortening as it contracts. Okay. If you compare doing that with an eccentric, so you're doing a negative curl. You're letting your arm lengthen as it contracts, you know that the eccentric is a much harder exercise. It's much more demanding on your body. And when you run, eccentric contractions are what dominate. So in order to treat the injury, you have to do a lot of eccentric exercise. Now, for the, for the research protocol, they had patients doing three sets of 15. This is what they built up to, with the knee straight, and then they had them do three sets of 15 with the knee bent, so to work both at the gastroc and the soleus component. They had them do that, three, so the three sets of 15 twice a day. So that was 180 repetitions twice a day for three months. Um, An 82% success. So that's hard to argue with. So now before you know, I start recommending surgery, you know, if it's, there's no tear there, this is always the protocol we try. And certainly pre for prevention, this would be the exercise. Again, there's other causes for pain around the Achilles region. We won't go through all of these. Uh, let me just give you a couple examples. So patients may have pain around the Achilles. You see, here, here's this dark area here at the Achilles. But the Achilles may be fine. It may be just in front of it here. And there's um, what's called the retrocalcaneal bursa. And it's a sac of fluid that can get inflamed. It's basically, bursas are basically like you could think of them as washers or protective sacs that protect or interspersed between tendons and bones. And this may be the source of somebody's pain. Now, if we find this, it's much easier to treat than an Achilles tendon problem. Um, we can try different types of physical therapy modalities, or I can take, again, a little needle, take a tiny bit of steroid medicine and put it right in that area, be, being very careful not to put it near the Achilles, and you may be back to running in you know, a week or two. The other thing is this is the calcaneus. This is a line through it. That's a stress fracture through the calcaneus. So this is something you don't want to run through. And um, you know, this would require probably you know, being out anywhere from six weeks to three months. Um, but it will heal if you catch it early and you, know, you basically rest. And then finally is plantar fascia. And uh, plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of heel pain in runners. Um, this is the plantar fascia. It's basically this, you can think of it as a thick ligament. It goes from your heel and attaches all the way up in your toes. And what it does is it actually helps support your arch. So it has an important function. Um, what you'll find is that patients wait, have this uh, intense heel pain right here where the plantar fascia comes off the, uh, particularly the inner part of the calcaneal bone. And 
it's sort of a diffuse heel pain. Uh, one of the classic signs is that first, when you first wake up in the morning, those first few steps are very, are very tough because as you sleep at night, the plantar fascia tightens up. And so you have to stretch before you get out of bed. It's you know, really hard to get going in the morning. And then it loosens up, and then by the end of the day, it's really hurting again. So what can we do about it? Well, the first thing I do um, is either myself or we'll have one of our trainers tape the arch. And it's a simple thing to do. You can even learn how to do it yourself. But it's a way to take pressure off that uh, origin of the plantar fascia. And you wear the tape 24 hours a day. Uh, and you can change it every day. The other thing you can do is get these uh, viscoelastic heel cups, put them in your shoes, you know, take, give yourself some cushioning there at the heel. Uh, you want to strengthen the muscles at the bottom of your foot. You can get some marbles here and pick them up with your toes and put them in the cup. So you're really trying to build the strength in those, really those deeper intrinsic muscles. So the thing is, though, when patients come to see me, they've usually tried all that. <laughs> so what do we do then? Okay. So for the tough cases, these are the things. We may need an orthotic. Um, if your foot is too flat, or the other side of it is if your foot has um, it's too high of an arch, both, both of those are predisposed to plantar fasciitis. Um, and then these other things we'll go over. This is a night splint. So remember I told you that the plantar fascia tends to get too tight at night? And this is a splint you can wear, and it's basically putting a stretch on the plantar fascia. You wear it at night. Um, you know, if you share the bed with someone, they're not going to be too happy with it. But uh, it's very effective. You know, it will relieve those, that pain you get first thing in the morning. And so you're getting eight hours of stretching, which is hard to do on your own. Next thing is if things really aren't getting better, again, very judicious use of some corticosteroid medicine. Uh, place it right here, uh, not in the plantar fascia, but right around it can be very effective. And it's interesting because the Achilles tendon, we know, is very prone to rupture if you put steroid around it. The plantar fascia seems to be able to tolerate this a little bit better. And so one injection, sometimes two, is, is very reasonable. Now, if that doesn't work, the big thing that everybody's talking about now is this shockwave therapy. Have you heard of this? So the same type of what they call it, extracorporeal shockwave therapy. You know what they use for kidney stones? Okay, basically a high ultrasound type of um, high frequency to kind of break things up. And uh, there's different types of machines. There's a, sort of a portable, sort of low-intensity one, and then one that you can use in the office. And there's a high-intensity one that actually re is so painful, it actually requires you to have general anesthesia, <laughs> because otherwise you wouldn't be able to tolerate it. But the idea here is that when you have plantar fasciitis and it's gone on for a while, you get degeneration in the tissue. It's kind of like that tendinosis we talked about. So there's poor blood flow in there. And by doing the shockwave therapy, the idea is you're actually traumatizing the tissue, but then it helps bring in new blood flow. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go out and have this. Um, it's expensive. Most insurance companies don't um, cover it. Um, but it would be sort of a last resort if you've tried everything else, you're not getting better, and somebody starts to talk about surgery. Again, other causes of heel pain, 
Um, not everything is plantar fasciitis. A uh, couple of these here. There is a tendon so that goes along the side of your foot. It's called the flexor hallucis longus. And this can actually mimic the pain of plantar fasciitis. And you can see here, this is the sheath around the tendon. Uh, goes from up in your leg. Goes right around that origin of the plantar fascia, right here, inserts onto your big toe. And what we see sometimes, and there's a way to test for this uh, on physical exam, is that the pain is actually coming from inflammation in that tendon. And that would have a very different treatment than plantar fasciitis, and usually a much quicker treatment. There's also a, a main nerve that goes through here. It uh, goes underneath what's called the tarsal tunnel, kind of similar to a uh, carpal tunnel. And this nerve can get compressed. And it breaks off into, so it's the tibial nerve. It can be entrapped here, or it break, branches off into the plantar nerve, the medial and the lateral. And either, either of those can also be entrapped. Um, again, the treatment for that would be very different than plantar fasciitis. Um, just going over this, and, and symptoms are also typically different. It's, it may have pain, but it's often a burning and a tingling, more of a kind of a, a nerve pain. And uh, Tunnell's sign means if you tap over the nerve, you can recreate the person's symptoms. And then sometimes, you know, it's something unexpected. Uh, this is actually um, a student who I saw over at the Student Health Center. She wasn't uh, particularly athletic. Uh, she came in and she said her heel hurt. Um, but I tried to elicit a history of something that may have brought it on, and you know, she said, no, nothing different about her life. Um, she, again, wasn't exercising, just going to class. Um, and what was of concern is that it hurt at rest, too. It wasn't just with activity. Um, so and no history of any overuse activity. And when we got an x-ray, she had this big hole in it. Now, that's a tumor, but fortunately for her, it's a benign tumor. And uh, she did fine with surgery. So, you know, sometimes, too, when things don't add up, you know, you have pain, but you can't really explain why. And particularly also if you develop pain at night, you know, when you're resting, that, that, those should be, you know, sort of worrisome signs for you. In terms of prevention, um, what can we do to prevent plantar fasciitis? Well, this whole idea of barefoot running is um, actually sort of been very popular in the past, and it's sort of catching on again. But, you know, we've often wondered, why don't the African runners develop all these foot problems like the Americans? And what we think we can trace it back to is that they grow up walking barefoot doing barefoot things, running barefoot. And they've got very strong muscles in their feet. And what the thinking now is that people grow up, and if you start running, you get these running shoes. And actually, maybe they're the cause of the problem. They've got so much support on them that they may sh actually shut down your foot muscles. So uh, those of you who have been following sort of the new shoes, you know Nike has come out with this new shoe, the Nike Free. So it's kind of like Nike and other shoe companies created a problem with these shoes that developed more and more and more padding and support. 
And now they've gone back to the reverse. So it's a shoe with almost no support. And the idea being that if you wear that, you can start to develop the strength again in your feet. Um, another thing what we, that we have the Stanford runners do is just run barefoot on the grass a couple times a week. Now, not everybody can tolerate this. If you've got a real flat foot or a real high arched foot, you may not tolerate the barefoot running. But for the average person, this is a very good preventative strategy. Um, the other thing you can do is just some self-massage and stretches. This is a nice way to stretch the plantar fascia. So you can just be sitting in a chair at work and grab onto those toes. Remember the plantar fascia goes from your heel up into the toes. So if you stretch those toes, you'll put a good stretch on the fascia. Um, this is also a good treatment for plantar fasciitis. Uh, one study found that by doing this stretch, holding it for 30 seconds and doing it 10 times a day was very effective at treating plantar fasciitis. And then finally, you can get you know, a golf ball or they've got these little massage tools to just massage the fascia and keep it pliable. And I think that's it. So hopefully we've got enough time for uh, questions. The question was, um, when you run, what is the best way to land? Should you land on your heel or should you avoid that? Um, most people will land on their heel. I mean, that's pretty normal. You land on your heel and then you roll off onto the toes. Um, so it's not bad to land on the heel. Um, if you overstride, what, the point I was trying to make is that if you overstride, you tend to come down really hard on the heel. And then that transmits force all the way up the leg. And that potentially could predispose you to something like a stress fracture. So by shortening your stride, uh, you tend to come down a little bit softer. The impact forces aren't quite as hard. Now, most of the Stanford, let's say the middle distance runners, they don't come down on their heel at all. They're running so fast that they come down on their midfoot and quickly off the toes. Um, for the average runner who's you know, going anywhere from probably a seven minute to you know, eight, nine, 10 minute pace, you're gonna land on your heel. If you're getting down into the five minute pace, you know, you're gonna land midfoot and just roll quickly off. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't purposely try to land on your midfoot unless you're going very fast. When you're running, um, you know, particularly if you're older or if you're out doing trails, um, you're probably gonna fall at some point. And so what can you do when you're falling to prevent injury? Um, and I can show you um, basically a, a judo technique for falling. Now you'd have to practice it, but the idea with judo when they fall all the time or other martial arts, um, see if I can, I, I won't demonstrate it, but the idea is that you don't fall, you never wanna fall with your hand out, okay? If you fall with your hand out to brace it, you're probably gonna fracture your wrist. Um, what you wanna try and do is roll onto your shoulder, get your head out of the way, and just go with the fall. So roll onto your shoulder and let your whole body just kind of roll across your back, not directly on your back, but kind of on the side. Um, it's a little hard to demonstrate up here. <laughs> um, yeah, the elliptical's great, and that's, that's the question is, is the elliptical machine, or some people call it the cross trainer machine, uh, a good one for recovery? And that's a great exercise because it's, it's not impact, but it does get you going in sort of a similar running motion. So typically when somebody's coming back from injury, um, and we're getting them back to running, that will be one of the first exercises I'll have them do. What you have to be careful with, we had one runner who was coming back from an injury. He was you know, a little obsessive, um, I remember a couple years ago, 
And um, so I told him to do the elliptical. Well, you know, he was on there for an hour and a half a day. And he developed IT band syndrome, which wasn't his original injury. And that actually became more tough to treat than his original injury. So I would just say, do it in moderation. The question was, could I talk about hamstring injury? I was going to include that. Um, it's a little less common than the big five, but I would say it's probably number six. Um, and in terms of prevention of hamstring injury, um, so there's two types of hamstring injury. There's one that you can develop sort of in the middle of your hamstring, right at the muscle tendon junction. We typically see that more in sprinters. So you're sprinting quick, the muscle's too tight, and you get this tear. Um, the other type of hamstring injury that I see more in the distance runners is up at the attachment. Um, that is more of a chronic overuse injury, and the treatments are, are a bit different. Um, I would say, though, without going into too much detail, the biggest thing you can do to prevent hamstring injuries is, number one, keep your hamstrings flexible, but also to do strengthening work for your hamstring, and then to do it, what we talked about, that eccentric so you want to do, so just the typical, like in the gym, where you're doing the knee curl, that's a concentric, so that's not going to work as well. Um, actually, there's another article I just published on, on the high hamstring injury in runners. Um, and if you were to go online to uh, Physician and Sports Medicine, and you can download the article. So, and the number of exercises there. The question is, you know, do you have, let's say, knee pain, let's say the patellofemoral pain, um, we'll assume, at what point would you um, obtain various imaging studies, uh, x-rays, uh, MRIs? So um, my general rule is if it seems very straightforward um, and, you know, it's pretty obvious that it's patellofemoral pain, there's a clear etiology, um, I don't get x-rays right away. It's not going to change my treatment. Now, if somebody is very young, or if they're older, then I typically will get x-rays. So in the older person, I want to make sure there's not arthritis that's complicating the picture. In the younger person, there's other types of things that can be the problem. Um, so if symptoms are going on for a while, the reason to get other, let's say, an MRI, and that would be the next choice. Uh, well, let me first say that on an x-ray, it can be helpful in that it can give you some idea of the alignment of the patella. Um, and that may change your treatment a little bit. Um, if you're not getting better, then the, the reason to get an MRI is if you're concerned about something else. Um, so do you have a meniscal tear? Um, do you have a cartilage defect? Um, is there you know, something else going on in the knee that you need the MRI for? But for just routine patellofemoral pain, um, it's usually not necessary. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of it now for research purposes, um, but we're trying to then tie that back into clinical um, evaluation that, that we could, we'll know exactly, you know, how does the MRI correlate with clinical exam? And maybe it would, just by doing a better clinical exam, we, we can avoid this. When do you use heat versus cold? Um, so very simply, um, if you have an, a, a recent injury, an acute injury, in the first 72 hours, you always want to use cold because that's what helps reduce swelling. Um, the reason to use heat is after you've had the injury for a while and you really want to stretch out the tissue. So heat helps warm up the tissue, helps you stretch out. So, but you never want to use that, certainly in the first 72 hours and typically the first week. 
So for patellofemoral pain, is flexibility as important as strength, or is there? Um, I would say strength is definitely the most important because that's what helps you control your alignment, Remember, and, and particularly the hip strength, the quadricep strength. The one thing I've seen um, is that probably if you had to take one thing, it's actually the IT band. If the IT band is too tight, part of the IT band, as it attaches toward the knee, actually there's a slip of it that connects in with the patella. And if the IT band's too tight, it can actually pull the patella out of alignment. So we typically get people stretching the IT band, even with patellofemoral pain. If you have a chronic injury, you know, what do you do? If, if it's chronic inflammation, so do you use ice or heat? Um, I think ice is overused with chronic injuries. I think there's a point of diminishing return. Um, so I'm, you know, if you've had the injury for a while, I'm just not real big on ice. It's just my personal experience. Um, because ice tightens tissue also. And if you're trying to mobilize tissue, I think you may be, you know, sort of going in two directions. Should you get worried about a clicking sound in your knee? If it doesn't hurt, don't worry about it. Yeah. So everyone gets it, you know. What, what, sometimes it may be, you may be getting that click because your patella is coming out of, out of the groove right at the end of the uh, movement. Right as you extend it, it tends to come out of the groove, and you may be hearing that click. And that's something where, again, you know, balancing the quadricep muscles, making sure that inner quadricep is very strong, strengthening your hips, making sure the IT band's loose, it's probably the best thing you can do. If it's really, if it starts to become painful, then you'd want to see is your patella actually subluxing out. And there, you know, you may need one of those braces I showed. Is friction massage helpful for breaking up scar tissue? Um, there's a lot of different techniques out there in terms of how to, um, deal with scar tissue. Friction massage is one. Um, it's just a deep massage. Um, you can go cross fiber, kind of against the grain of the tissue or with the tissue. There's many other techniques. Um, there's ART, active release therapy. Um, there's a, a number. Um, and it is very helpful. Uh, in fact, uh, many of our Stanford runners go on a routine basis um, to, for massage therapy and for the deep myofascial therapy uh, just to keep things loose, to break up any scar tissue that's starting to develop or just tightness, really. And for IT band, I have to say it's been very effective. Um, we get things loosened with the massage and then we get them strong. The timing of when you, would you do flexibility or strengthening. Um, with flexibility, um, you always want to do it you know, after you run. So you want to do a little bit of a light um, warm-up before you start running, or you may just ease into your run slowly, and that's your warm-up. Um, but the best time to stretch is when you're really warmed up, and that's typically after a run. Now, you, after a really hard run, you're going to be too sore. Um, but after more of your recovery runs, and the muscles have got the blood flow going, and things are looser, it's typically the best time to do your stretching. Or at night. Um, you never want to stretch first thing in the morning. And, you know, night, later in the day, you tend to be a little bit looser. In terms of your strengthening, um, it depends how you want to approach it, and there's no right or wrong here. One way to approach it is you do your strengthening, and you fatigue yourself, and then you go out for your run, and it just becomes a, a harder workout. Um, so some people will do that. Um, 
The other theory, though, is that if you're really trying to do quality, a real quality run, it's better to do it after so that you don't take away from the running itself. But there's really no right or wrong on that. Um, I think it's just what you're training for, what your goals are, what feels, feels best for you, the timing of it. Over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, um, when to use them, probably is it safe to use them. Um, I would say generally, sure, for a couple days, you know, let's say you've, you think you have an injury, you know, it seems like it's overuse, you know, it doesn't seem too bad. Um, so you're going to take some rest, maybe get in the pool, you're doing your icing. And I think to take anti-inflammatory medication at the doses that are recommended is reasonable. Um, now, if you have any history of ulcer disease, um, if you drink a lot of alcohol, any history of kidney disease, I mean, you have to be, you have to be careful, obviously. I wouldn't do that unless under a doctor's supervision. The big thing, though, the big mistake I see runners make, though, is that they will take these anti-inflammatories and then go out for a long run and they get dehydrated. And the biggest concern you worry about with the anti-inflammatories, number one is you can get an ulcer. But even more serious is it can affect your kidney function and it can lead to kidney failures. So if you go out for a run, let's say a marathon, and you're popping some of these anti-inflammatories and you get dehydrated and so there's even less perfusion to your kidney, I don't think that's, that's wise. Um, so I would just say just be careful about your hydration. Only do it for a couple of days on your own before you, you see a physician. There's a newer technique called radiofrequency ablation. Um, it's experimental, um, and no one at Stanford is doing it yet. Um, the research that's out that I'm aware of is all by the company who developed the equipment for this. So I think it's still not clear how effective it is. I was actually talking this over with one of our surgeons, um, and he wasn't ready to start using it yet. He wanted more research on it. So it's not to say it's not effective, but not enough. We don't know enough about it yet to be using it on an everyday kind of pr practice. If you've had an injury, let's say, and your, you, in, in your, your sport is more distance walking, hiking, would the recovery or the approach be any different than uh, running? I think it's, it, it would be similar. Um, you know, they always say the 10% rule. So when you're coming back, or just from prevention, you never want to increase your intensity or your volume more than 10% per week. Um, so you'd start with something that seems comfortable, but you don't want to increase more than 10% per week. And that's, you know, also if you're training for a marathon, as well as coming back from injury. What's my favorite warm-up? <laughs> uh, oh gosh, it depends what time of day, you know? I mean, if it's morning, it's probably, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, actually, that's, it's actually a good question, um, just because I think a lot of people don't prepare properly, but what you, you should do before you race, and I'm not a coach, but I can just tell you what has worked for me, um, was told to me by my coach when I was in college, is just that you actually want to do something quick. So the day before the race, um, or the week leading up, you don't want to still be doing your mileage, okay? You want to go to the track, and you want to, go, let's say, go and do a, just a couple, like quarters, and you want to do it faster than your race pace, okay? Not so you have, you know, really fatigue, but just 
just a couple. You want to really hyper stimulate your system. So when the, the race starts that day, so you wouldn't do it right before a race. Maybe right before the race you would do a, you know, a couple hundred yards. So when the race starts and you have to go quick, all your body, and you start off, let's say, at let's say seven minute pace, if you've been doing, even for very short intervals, a six minute pace, that feels really easy for you, that seven minute pace. Um, so that would be just my own personal tip. So are there any bad consequences from training on a treadmill? Is that? Yeah. yeah. Well, the only thing is that if, with the treadmill, it's like the sidewalk is coming towards you. So the, the mechanics are a little bit different than normal running. And so if that's all you did, I mean, it's fine if that's what you do for, and you're just for conditioning. But if you were using that as, as preparation to go out and race, um, it's not going to fully prepare you, and the mechanics are different, and you may be a little more predisposed to injury. Um, so for general conditioning, if all you can get to is a treadmill and you like that, that's fine. But I wouldn't just do that as preparation to go out and, and do a race. What would you do for pain in, in the hip flexors? Um, all the time, sometimes. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, the obvious is you'd want to stretch out the hip flexor muscle more. Um, but what I find more and more is that, I mean, it, it's probably something else. You know, there may actually be something going on in the hip joint itself. Um, I see a lot of runners who are coming in with early arthritis in their hip that have thought or been told for a number of years that it was just a hip flexor strain. And um, so it's, you know, the earlier you can catch it, the more we can prevent it from developing into something more serious. Question is guidelines for uh, younger runners. Um, yeah, I, well, I'll tell you my personal opinion. I was asked this question, um, I'm on the advisory board for Runner's World and somebody wrote in with this question a number of years ago. Um, Personally, I know they say that younger people can run a marathon and it's fine, but I, I am against that. That's just me personally. Um, so I think up to 10K is probably reasonable, um, let's say up to age 14. I would say half marathon through age 18. That's just my own personal. The problem is that I've done some other research and it it looks like if runners do too much running when they're younger and they don't do enough other sports, um, it actually is not good for their bones. So when you're younger, uh, so for instance, we did a study and uh, looked at runners. Uh, it was a, uh, these were you know, elite runners. And we looked back, those who developed stress fractures and those who didn't. And it looks like if you played ball sports when you're younger, so like soccer or basketball, which have you moving in all kinds of different directions. The forces are a little bit higher, but they're intermittent, whereas running is kind of this low-level, uh, constant force. It looks like if you play these other sports when you're younger, you have, your bones actually are much stronger, and it's much better for you than if you are running all the time when you're younger. So what we're telling the aspiring runners now is actually you should probably be doing a lot of cross-training and maybe play other sports like soccer um, if you want to be a great runner. Um, yeah, and particularly with the female, we always worry that if they run too much, 
then they stop having their normal menstrual cycles. And that's the absolute worst thing you can do for your bone. And um, I can't tell you how many times I see, you know, our elite women runners um, who, you know, have stopped what they, what they call amenorrhea, have stopped having their periods for a number of years, and they have osteoporosis, you know, at age 20. And that's hard to correct. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.